Hello, Business Made Simple professionals. Welcome to the podcast that takes the mystery out of growing your business. This week, we're answering the question, if one out of 10 startups fails, is your startup destined to fail? Special guest Tom Eisenman, professor of business administration at Harvard Business School and author of How Startups Fail, shares six distinct patterns he's found from surveying over 470 failed entrepreneurs so you know exactly what to avoid when starting up and growing your own business. But first, let's check in with your host, Donald Miller, and co-hosts, Kula Callahan and Dr. J.J. Peterson. On this week's episode, we're talking to Tom Eisenman about why startups fail. That's the title of his book. J.J. Yeah. Tom, you know, we've already done the interview. You haven't heard it yet. But, uh-uh. but Tom basically goes through a list of six reasons startups fail. And it actually acts as a vaccine in some ways. Yeah. Because you, it makes you more self-aware oh, right, okay. of, yeah. of what you're doing. Here's a question for you. Okay. We, we've been in business, you know, story brand business made simple, what, six, seven six, years? Six, seven years, really, yep. yeah. I have a question for you. You and I are both going to have to answer this question. Okay. Two ways <gasps> we could have bid it. <laughs> two ways not, we could have bit it and got really lucky <laughs> two, no, you know what i mean yeah, yeah. like two yeah. ways, like there's no reason we should be alive yeah, right yeah there were definitely moments where we made specific choices to head a very specific direction so yeah. like for instance at one point when we uh decided to do our certification program yeah. versus like building out a huge business we decided to keep our right. We our were going to bring coaches in house, and we decided to certify, certify instead because it out. gave us the chance to scale fast. And that could have that was a choice we made <laughs> that was a little bit risky. Well, in other words, you know? if we would have decided to have the coaches in house, yeah, we could have we could have bid it. We could have totally bid it. We yeah. could have like gone. Our overhead would have gone through the roof. Uh, we d- didn't know if that was going to be in demand or not, you know. Yeah. And so that was a moment. I honestly, when I look back at it, I mean, this is kind of a perhaps to rose-colored glasses, but I think we just decided to grow really smart, honestly. Yeah. From the very so, beginning. You know, listen to that. We, yeah, we, know. It's a, it, you know, yeah, we were smart. We I were mean, smart. and we dodged, we totally we dodged every those bullets <laughs> that would have killed us. no like, luck involved. Honestly, <laughs> I don't think, I mean, I remember, like, we used to sit literally in the basement of a rental house, yeah. just the five of us. Which, by the way, is a very smart idea. Yeah. Totally. Basement yeah. of a rental house. That's don't show I'm up saying. if it's raining. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it will flood. It will flood. And it will smell like mold for the next two months. But I remember, you know, we were still doing Storyline at that point. And it was right actually after I came on that we decided to kill Storyline, which was a life planning conference that we used to do. Um, and it was a pretty significant amount of our revenue at that point because StoryBrand hadn't really taken off at all. Yeah. And we killed that and just doubled down on this one offering, which was at the time StoryBrand Workshops and didn't, well, JJ might disagree, but didn't hire people we didn't need for the first couple of years, I don't think. And we yeah. all just did, we were we kind all, of all, all hands on deck. Yeah. Yeah. There were, we were wearing a lot of hats. Part of that is because it just took us a long time to figure out lean management and execution. When I look around at the team, n- nothing against any of us. Yeah, yeah. We got lucky. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? We got yeah. And we got lucky early. Yeah. We got lucky early. And because, you know, ultimately the business is going to come down to, to, you know, the rock stars on your team. Yeah. And if you think about where we all started, you know, I'm a, me- a Christian memoirist who's going to run a, a learning and development business. Yeah. Like, like, let's not bet on him. Yeah. <laughs> then, you know, Kyle Reed, who's our, he runs our entire design and development department and is honestly maybe our most important team member. He was at YMCA doing yeah. <laughs> design, designing and postcards, yep. you know, and, mm-hmm. and so on and so on. Well, Tom Eisenman's book, Why Startups Fail, is essentially a vaccine against your business failing. 
he uh, interviewed or surveyed about 470 business leaders who all failed. And I'm, I'm being honest here. The wisdom is awesome. I've already bought the book and I'm going to grab the audible copy of it. Uh, Tom Eisenman is a professor at Harvard University. He's written over 100 case studies for Harvard Business Review, writes for Harvard Business Review. Here's my conversation with Tom Eisenman about why startups fail. Tom Eisenman, thanks for coming on. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I, I, you know, I'm curious about a number of things. Your book is called Why Startups Fail, A New Roadmap for Entrepreneurial Success. Just based on the title and reading the synopsis, I ordered it off of Amazon. I just told you. Thank that. you. Every time I, not every time, but most time I buy something because I'm a messaging marketing guy, I try to reverse engineer why I just did that. And I think it was, it has something to do with the negative title. The the fact that you're, you're saving me from a consequence, which is something to learn from right there. But when I, when I read the title and read the synopsis, and of course, because of the age we're living in right now, I literally said to myself, this is a vaccine. This this is gonna this is gonna help you recognize when those uh, when those harmful germs are floating through your organization. Well, I, I, want, I want to just get straight into it. Why do the research? I mean, what was it tugging at you? You've 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 written over a hundred case studies for Harvard Business Review. You've you, you've you're taught you're teaching the MBA program there at Harvard. What about this specifically made you say, "I've got to cover this"? Yeah, so I'm, I've been at Harvard Business School on the faculty for twenty four years and. Pretty much the first half of that, I was teaching what I would call high-level strategy, sort of arm-wavy stuff about platforms and network effects and so forth. And then um, starting around 2008, I got into the nitty-gritty of how you actually run a startup. We have that in our curriculum. And I started to coach teams of of aspiring student entrepreneurs and discovered um, a lot of your listeners will have heard of lean startup, sort of a movement that swept out of Silicon Valley and sort of took over the world of entrepreneurship. And discovered those ideas early and pushed them into our curriculum and pushed my student entrepreneurs that I was coaching to adopt these practices. And I watched one team in particular, Quincy Apparel, former students, do a textbook perfect job with Lean Startup, minimum viable product, et cetera, et cetera, tested, validated demand for their idea. And they, and, and by the way, I invested um, and they still failed. So, mm, you know, yeah. followed the playbook. And and here I was supposedly an expert on entrepreneurship. I was a failure at explaining failure. <laughs> and and since two thirds of, depending on how you define startup and how you define failure, you know, certainly a majority of startups and maybe as many as 90% yeah, you, fail. You've got some statistics here saying 90%, 20% first year, 30 by the second, 50 by the fifth, and 70% don't even make it to the 10th year. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's painful. Um, so, so I watched this venture fail. Couldn't ex- I could point to a lot of reasons, but I couldn't pinpoint the cause. And I saw how much it hurt um, the, the founders that I was close to. The pair of them were best friends in business school and, and weren't on speaking terms after the thing unwound. And resolved then to do everything I could to sort of figure out like what's happening and, and more importantly, can we do anything to avoid it? Let's get into the six reasons that uh, startups fail. Number one, bad bedfellows, dysfunctional relationships with key resource providers. I've seen this in a number of, of friends, acquaintances who failed. And, and I, my advice often to people who are looking for a partner is um, you're probably not going to find a rescuer. Uh, that, that you, and you may give away 50% of the company because you're simply scared. And you don't want to do it alone rather than because you actually need this person. I imagine it's much more involved than that, but this is a serious one. Bad Bedfellows is certainly about co-founders and, and some of the dysfunctions. The case that anchors this failure pattern is the apparel company that I mentioned. 
And the, the two founders um, had two problems. One, they couldn't figure out who, two MBAs who both wanted to be the boss and they couldn't figure out who was gonna be the CEO and that will slow a startup down. And two, um, neither of them, even though they had a good idea and they tested it and sort of proved there was demand, neither of them had designed or manufactured apparel before. Hmm. And some businesses are more forgiving of that lack of expertise than others. This is a business where you really want people who've actually cut their teeth, you know, sometimes literally uh, on the samples and the fabrics, quality control, all these things. And um, there's so many things that can go wrong. And, and if you lack the domain expertise, you're setting yourself up. And, and so the Bad Bedfellows is, is not just about the co-founders. It actually cascades through the whole roster of players that sort of have to contribute their time or their money or something to the venture. And so, so given their lack of industry knowledge, they, um, they recruited industry veterans, people who knew how to source the fabric and make the patterns and so forth. But these are folks that had grown up in big companies where you kind of sit on your hands and wait for somebody to move the work that's one step earlier in the process to you. In a startup, of course, early stage startup, everybody's got to pitch in and, and put out whatever fire is burning. Uh, hottest. And and so these folks just weren't suited to the rhythms of an early stage startup. And uh, even though they had a good idea, they just couldn't get their act together in time before they ran out of cash. I thought recently about um, what really makes a business go. And there's this hidden ingredient that a lot of people don't talk about. You know, if I were going in to invest in a company, one of the questions I would ask is, which one of you is up at 3 a.m. pacing the living room? How important is that? I mean, I, and I don't even know what, what what would you call that. I mean, it, it's it's passion, but it's more than passion. It's this unbelievable head on a swivel, looking for anything that could potentially go wrong. And if there's a two percent chance that something could go wrong, somebody's pacing the living room at three a.m. and trying to figure out a solution or how to hedge their bets against that that particular thing. And if that's not there. I don't give you much of a shot. Yeah, agree. I think we're talking about grit or paranoia. It's it's a bunch of things. If you don't have it, um, you're toast, right? If you're ambivalent um, or if you're casual, I mean, these founders, it's just too hard being an entrepreneur. Um, yeah. If if you um, don't have the determination to do what you just said, um, you're not going to make it. But on the other hand, there's it's not enough. I mean, we got plenty of anxious, worried, sort of alert entrepreneurs out there who who are running into lots of other problems. So necessary but not sufficient. All right, number two, false starts, neglecting to research customer needs before commencing their engineering efforts. Jump the gun, too eager to get a product out there uh, is a major reason they that that uh, some startups fail. Yeah, it's probably the biggest one, um, and uh, it goes right to the heart of what makes an entrepreneur. It's not only the sort of determination and 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 grit and and alertness that you talk about, but it's a bias for action. Right, entrepreneurs are people who do things, and, and particularly once you quit your salary job and you sort of go full blast at the venture, um, the meter's running. Right, the, yeah. no money is coming in. A lot of money is going out. And it's a natural impulse, given the identity of entrepreneurs, given the pressure they're under, to make the thing and sell the thing as fast as they can. And what happens is, in a lot of cases, um, they rush the product to market. They, they skip what really doesn't need to be more than three weeks, you know, a couple of months at the most, where, where you'd actually be talking to potential customers really validating a, a strong unmet customer need, understanding the limitations of somehow they're solving the problem that you hope to solve. So what are the problems with the solutions they're using today? 
you're either bootstrapping out of your own pocket or you've raised a year's worth of runway, 18 months. And if you waste the first four months on a flawed first version of the product, it just, it boosts your failure odds. Yeah. How do you balance that against, I've done both, Tom. I've, I've released a product that uh, I just knew would work because I'd seen it out in the market work and then didn't realize how much competition there would be. That was my failure. It wasn't that it wasn't a problem people had. It is. The product still worked anyway, but we, you know, we trickled along at 15% of what my projections would be and had to build it. Then, the, you know, I was talking to Paul Burns at Twitter the other day. He's, he heads up their, their giant sales team. And he said, Don, you know, one of the issues that we deal with in sales here at Twitter is some of our accounts, when, when we sell advertising, some of the businesses who need to buy advertising from us, they don't actually realize they have the problem that they have that we solve. So we've got to somehow agitate the problem or let them know they've got this problem in order to sell product. How much of it is not being able to predict or understand the market versus not being able to actually communicate to the market they need this product? Would you put both of those issues in the same boat? Yeah, I like that way to frame it. And it's particularly acute um, what you're describing. The more you're innovating, um, the more people will not have experience with whatever you've got right, in mind. Right. So you got to do some missionary work, some some educating the market. And you know, for an early stage startup with limited resources and, and no reputation, that's really rough. Okay, false positives. Number three, excessive optimism about market demand based on a strong response from a startup's first customers also can lead some founders to pursue a flawed opportunity, burning through cash reserves in the process. My, my team uh, will point fingers at me for this one as well, big time. Wow. <laughs> I, once bought, I think I spent like five grand or something and bought recessionready.com as a lead generator because I just gave this, you know, kind of a plan if we go into recession, this was pre-COVID. And uh, I think we got about 23 email addresses. It turns out when people have a lot of money, they're not thinking about a potential recession. <laughs> um, so, yep, false positive. And this one is so tricky. And this is a false positive for your listener, just like COVID testing, right? Yeah, um, yeah. It, you know, in this case, it tells the entrepreneur there's strong demand when, in fact, there may not be strong demand, especially for the mainstream market. I mean, we want to separate the early adopters who often are just different than the mainstream. Most businesses, you, you can't succeed unless you bring the early adopters on board. But most businesses, if they're going to reach any kind of scale, need the mainstream customers. The trick for the entrepreneur is to understand the differences in needs, if there are any. Sometimes the mainstream is just sort of a weaker version of the early adopters. Sometimes the early adopters have fundamentally different needs. A good example is Dropbox, which I'm sure everybody's familiar with. Drew Houston is the entrepreneur that built the business. And he set out to build a business his mother could use to store her recipes. That was the vision. But to get it going and get some feedback on the first version of the product, he had to go to um, really sophisticated early adopters who were software engineers, right, with many computers and collaborating in complicated ways and sort of mobile devices and so forth. And if he built a version for them, he would have built a very different and much more complicated over-engineered product. And he had the discipline, actually, to sort of understand the difference between the early adopters and the mainstream. That's actually a really telling story. I mean, you know, there's a hidden principle in there, uh, or at least a hidden strategy, and that's keep it as absolutely simple as possible so that you know people don't get confused about what, what we would use your product for. All right, we've only got a few more minutes, but I want to get through some of these speed traps. Early adopters embrace the product and spread the word about it, attracting more customers without any investment in marketing. As it attracts rivals, 
starts seeking uh, an edge, cuts prices and pours money into promotions, new customers begin to cost more. And as the business burns through cash, investors become reluctant to commit more capital. For example, Groupon. Speed traps. What are some speed traps that we can look out for? Yeah. So uh, speed trap. Some of the listeners may remember fab.com, online retailing. You know, WeWork has a lot of aspects of a speed trap. And uh, these are businesses that just they grow too fast. And um, first wave of customers comes easily. The next wave to sustain the growth. I mean, people, the investors will buy in at a very high price for their equity, expecting continued hyper growth. Entrepreneur doesn't need his or her arm twisted, right? Entrepreneurs love to grow too. First wave was all organic, um, uh, word of mouth and so forth. Next wave, you got to do paid marketing. Uh, that starts to get expensive, particularly when your growth attracts rivals who are also coming in and going after the same customers. You got a discount in order to get the new people on board. And then if you're doing anything that involves humans, I mean, some businesses are just pure software, but if you got people answering the phone, think of Robinhood, like just yeah. a few weeks ago yeah. with, with the surge in trading volumes, you got to hire all these people. You got and, and you're doing this in a startup that has no systems to speak of for just managing. You don't have middle managers until you hire them. You don't have systems for coordinating their work until you put those systems in place. So you can really spin out of control pretty easily. Sometimes I count my blessings that we didn't just blow up in a good way, you know, that we didn't just suddenly have 10 times the number of customers coming in because we just wouldn't have been able to grow in a quality way. For a lot of businesses, 10 times the number of customers means 10 times the number of employees. And, and yeah. I can just wreak havoc on a culture um, and, and on quality. Okay. Help wanted. Hypergrowth leads to problems. Financing risk. Uh, business falls out of favor with venture capital firms. Uh, gaps in the senior management team. Recruiting the wrong individuals can lead to strategic drift. I mean, it sounds like more of the same problem with with speed traps. Yeah. In this case, in this case, the last case, the demand started to soften and, and then the problems hit. This case, the venture continues to have very strong demand. The problem is just something happens. Either the money dries up in the external environment, like if you think of clean tech in, in like the 2010 timeframe or the entire great recession or COVID, you know, COVID crushed yeah. um, tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of small businesses. And you can't predict it, but if you're expanding and if you've built up your cost base just before the, the dry spell hits, you're in a lot of trouble. So there's some strategies for sort of squirreling away enough money for a rainy day, keeping your cost structure flexible and so forth. And then the missing manager is a big deal, you know, particularly if the CEO, the founder and CEO doesn't have experience in some key function. The example in the book is online home furnishing retailer, sending couches across the country. It is hard to ship a, a couch from the West Coast to Kansas City in a four-hour window when the person has taken off from work. You, unlike your Amazon books, which you're delighted if they come two days early, if your couch comes two days early, you've got a big problem. It's out on the curb while you're at work. And, you know, and, and if it comes beaten up, it's a problem too. So, so in this case, the company had a brilliant marketer and demand guy, demand generation guy at the helm, but he didn't know anything about logistics. And he ran through three vice presidents of operations before he found somebody who could ship the goods, you know, and in the meantime, the costs are spiraling and he's burning through cash and mm -hmm. so forth. So lots of demand, but, but hurt the company because there was a missing key manager. Yeah. Another one you can easily see happening. Finally, we've got cascading miracles. And my guess is Tom, that, that our listeners, because I interacted with so many of them, my guess is this is the one that's going to hit them the hardest. They're going to feel like uh, they're looking in a mirror on cascading miracles, betting on success when the odds are exponentially stacked against you. The problem is 
you know, we as entrepreneurs are incredibly optimistic. You know, I can see the best case scenario and it's it's actually difficult sometimes for me to see the worst case scenario. And then I tend to, unlike in this interview, forget my failures really quickly, yeah. which is a, it's a great characteristic to have, but it creates a little bit of a blind side. Yeah. And you've labeled it perfectly betting on success when the odds are exponentially stacked against you. Yeah. And, and in these cases, like a half dozen things have to go right. If any one of them goes wrong, the business is toast. You've got um, a big change in customer behavior. You may have to raise a lot of money. Um, execution may be tricky. Maybe you may need government approvals for something that's in this weird um, regulatory gray area. And, and it's like flipping a coin. You know, if each of these is a 50 50 shot, the odds of flipping heads five times in a row is 3%. It's like a roulette wheel. Um, and uh, uh, what you get are overconfident, often charismatic CEOs, you know, to get a team on board and to get enough money to pursue one of these ideas um, often takes a Pied Piper. And, and and sometimes it can be hard to sort out the difference between a true visionary and a cult leader. You know, you get a Theranos in the, in the worst case. Okay. Well, how do we, how do we guard ourselves against any of these six things happening? What are some things that we can do to, as you say in your book, fail better? I mean, the self-awareness goes a long way. Um, yeah. You know, one of, one of the, the uh, I think, most important things is entrepreneurs get a ton of advice. You provide it. I provide it. There's some conventional wisdom about what makes a great entrepreneur. And, and that very wisdom, it's good for a lot of reasons. But if it's followed blindly, it can actually get the entrepreneur into trouble, you know, sort of focus. Well, if you focus too narrowly and it's time to pivot to some new idea, you haven't sort of planted the seeds that may grow the business in a new direction. Be frugal. If you're too frugal, you may not hire that manager who can actually ship mm, the couch. Yeah. You know, you'll write down the list, um, grow, right? Um, just do it. All, all of the, all of the advice for entrepreneurs. So I, I just, I think entrepreneurs um, just need to keep their eyes open and um, think twice, you know, so much of the advice is trust your gut. And, and there's a good reason for that, right? A big advantage the entrepreneurs have is being scrappy. But there are some decisions where you do need to think twice. You need to sleep on it, maybe two nights, and the entrepreneur would be um, better off slowing down just a little bit. Well, Tom, thank you so much for your your wisdom. The book is called Why Startups Fail, and it sounds like a pretty good vaccine to me against failure. Uh, I, I've already ordered the physical copy of the book, but I think I've got a flight tomorrow. I think I'm going to download the audible copy of the book as well. Uh, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks for helping us out. Thank you so much. Our StoryBrand certified guides are the best marketers in the world and know how to get your business a huge return. For this week's Marketing Minute tip, our very own StoryBrand marketing guru, Dr. JJ Peterson, talks with StoryBrand certified guide, Christian Inahosa. Christian, your client was having trouble boosting revenue. What, what was going on? So I had an IT client who was missing out on significant revenue by not engaging previous clients. People were doing business with them and then just never coming back. Yes, repeat business is huge. So what did you change to fix that and what was the result? Yeah, so what I did is I helped them write a three-page sales letter to send out to clients who hadn't done business with them in a while. And we offered to them a low-level service to sort of on-ramp them back up to manage services. Uh, so I wrote a letter with the headline, read this letter if your computer has been running slow. And we saw a huge response from it. Uh, so people came back and came back in, they got a 3% response rate and then now are opening the door to do business with these clients again. That's amazing. And in three weeks, it worked it to raise about $1,300, right? Yeah. 
And Christian, you've been a guide for how long? Just a month, actually. Just a month. Even already being a guide a month and you're already seeing success. So if you are listening right now and are not using a captivating sales letter to re-engage previous customers, then you need to go to marketingmadesimple.com and hire a StoryBrand certified guide today. I think Tom Eisenman and I could talk uh, for a long time. And if we would have kept talking, we would have covered something that we didn't cover in the actual interview, but I'll cover it in my closing thought. And that is this, failures are really a gift. We all fail from time to time. And if, if we really look back over our lives, the times that we failed were the times of uh, what biologists call punctuated evolution. That is, you know, you, you evolved very, very quickly over a short period of time because of a negative circumstance. There is actually a blessing that is associated with failure. You know, when I look back over my life, uh, at least in my business career, some of you know I lost $350,000 in one day. That was my entire life savings from being a best-selling author. I was left with $5,000 in the bank. $350,000 means $700,000 in earned income because I had to give half of it to the government. So $350,000 got lost. It would take me $700,000 to get back to ground one. And of course, I cried myself to sleep a couple nights. Of course, I felt like a fool because I would made that investment. Of course, all that is true. But I kind of woke up and just said, look, you know, don't waste this opportunity. You know, Miller, you know in stories when a, when a hero has a challenge, that's the time when they grow. So don't waste this crisis. And uh, within a couple years, was able to get that money back in savings and learned so much about business, learned so much about business while I was hurting that these days, uh, Betsy and I, and it's only 10 years ago, that that happened. But these days, Betsy and I are able to give away to charity that amount of money every single year, and we make a commitment to do that. Everything I lost is now seen as, as what we give, and, and honestly, we, you know, we want to give more than that. Um, you can turn a failure around. It is a gift. And I say that to you if you're driving down the street and you're beating your head against the steering wheel saying, I can't believe I did that. And I'm not just talking about business. Talking about relationships, I'm talking about parenting, I'm talking about marriage, I'm talking about uh, friendship, I'm talking about those things that are really, honestly, much more important in life than business. Failure is a gift. Okay, so how do you turn it into a gift? And that's what this closing thought is really about. You need to formalize the process. All you need to do is sit down and write down the mistake you made. I was short-tempered with my kid. What did you learn? And if you don't write down what you learned, I learned... Uh, that I need to be fully present. I learned that I need to walk in the door and turn off work mode and turn on family mode. I learned that I need to have a vision for our family. I need to learn. And you will learn those things in a season of punctuated evolution. Uh, You will suddenly get good at that. There are so many things in my life that that, uh, I've struggled with, struggled with, struggled with, struggled with, struggled with, couldn't get better. And uh, then something will happen. It's almost always a failure. I'll put my foot in my mouth or something. And even though I had tried for years to get better at that, it wasn't until I made a mistake, felt the shock collar, if you will, of reality, felt like a fool, felt embarrassed, felt stupid, whatever it is. It wasn't until that point when I was able to make that transformation. And I think if you don't sit down and write down, here's the flaw I have, and here's what I've learned uh, because I had to face the consequences of that flaw, I think you don't experience the punctuated evolution. 
So there's got to be a formal process of saying, here is the mistake I made, and here is what I learned. You know, a lot of us will ignore our mistakes because they're just uncomfortable to think about, and those people continue to make those mistakes for years to come. Failure is a gift. Failure is a gift. Just formalize the process of transforming yourself and all that you learn during that failure, and you will redeem that failure, and I promise you, you will look back and you'll be grateful that it happened. If you want to become a Business Made Simple professional, sign up for Pro Access at businessmadesimple.com and get all our online courses, plus access to live coaching sessions with Donald Miller every month. Go pro at businessmadesimple.com.